I'm here with uh, Dan Sinekin. He is the author of Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature, uh, out on Columbia Press. It's like, a, it's an incredibly good book. Um, and that may be me being kind of narcissistic because um, I, for a little while, worked in the publishing industry and I'm kind of, I could kind of like flick through these pages and go, oh, I had an internship at that place he's talking about. Um, it was a very brief period in the publishing industry. Most of it internships, very little of it paid, very li- none of it paid well. Um, and I think we're going to be finding out why it wasn't very well paid and why the books that I have my stamp on were generally very bad. Um, it's a book about how the sausage is made. I, I made very poor sausages during my brief tenure. Um <laughs> Just awful garbage sausages, hot dogs, really. Um, <laughs> at one point, I did get to meet Michael Moorcock. Nice guy. Um, so, Dan, uh, hi, welcome to the show. Um, so, um, sorry, do that a bit better. <laughs> so, Dan, welcome to the show. And um, I know summing up the whole thing is probably a bit, a little bit boring, but... When we're talking about conglomeration, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's good to start out by giving uh, uh, just kind of a bit of the big picture of what I'm up to in this book. And yeah, what, I, what I'm what I'm trying to do is show what the conglomeration of the publishing industry did to U.S. fiction. So yeah, what is conglomeration? If you go back to the 1950s, most publishing houses in the United States. Uh, were, we would call them today, independent. They were uh, owned by uh, the founders, the heirs of the founders, people who ran the companies, sometimes still were editors. Um, And they were pretty small. You know, when you think of publishing houses, some of these places could fit in a very large house or they had sort of the familial kind of sense of relationships between people that you think of as being together in a house. Um, and that, uh, at the very end of the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, large companies started to buy up these little publishing houses and consolidate the industry. Um, and a lot of the times this happened through conglomeration, which means that a company from one kind of business uh, merged or acquired a company from a different kind of business, and then they were all within the same so something like RCA buying Random House. in Exactly. So in 1965, RCA, which was an electronics company, also did a lot of defense contracting for the Department of the Defense in the U.S., uh, bought up Random House, which already at that point uh, also owned Knopf and Pantheon. Um, and that was one of the, the early moments of conglomeration. And so I know we don't want to be like, you know, before this happened, there was a great golden age. But... One of the things I really enjoyed, it kind of goes all the way through the book, is how like the, the lives of the, of the people in publishing and the writers themselves are kind of all worked in together. You've got like um, John Ashbury and Edward Gorey going to parties together in the Lower East Side. It's all it's all very mad men. You know, it's it's all whiskey sours and chatting about, with Andy Warhol and so on. It it that's like a really, really great touch. It does feel like a golden age. You kind of can't help but make it feel like, oh my god, all the cool people who I've ever heard of used to hang out in the same apartment and <laughs> drink whiskey. 
And there's a reason why, I mean, there's, there's a reason why you've heard of all of them and they all used to hang out because you got to be someone who we would hear of by hanging out with all the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that was like how the whole, it's still very much in 2023, still in industry where personal relationships matter immensely and who you know oh, is really yeah. important. <laughs> um, and yet... Uh, I think, you know, I think it's less the case that I, I think that's less true. I think that is eroded a little bit compared to what it was like in the 50s when I think, you know, it was somehow even more important uh, to, to be connected to the right people. And your success was really about your interpersonal networks uh, above all else. Um, and so, you know, going to Harvard with Ashbury and O'Hara, uh, or being, you know, their friend down the road at Radcliffe that was, um, going to do a lot of really good things for your career. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, could you still like send a manuscript to a publishing house and become a bestselling author at that, at that point? Or was it like totally locked down into the, these people's like little social circles? It happened. Uh, it happened more than, than it does now so the the um which sounds sort of paradoxical compared to what i what i just said but the way that you get through the reason why it's less who you know a little bit less who you know now than it was isn't because of trying to submit things over the transom which is now impossible um but because now we have certain kind of professionalization uh pathways through the rise of mfa which really i mean it started at iowa in even in the thirties, but it didn't really become a professional path for a lot of people until the 1990s. Um, and that and other mechanisms by which a person could potentially enter into the system, um, without having to know somebody or developing that network through schooling. But in the fifties, it was still occasionally possible to submit something over the transom, which was the case of Cormac McCarthy. It worked in that instance because McCarthy sent it only to one place, which was Random House. And it just happened to end up on the desk to to ultimately make it on the desk of Albert Erskine, uh, Erskine, who was the editor for William Faulkner. Um, and the affinities between McCarthy and Faulkner and other writers that Erskine worked with um, made it uh, just a surprisingly good fit. And so that panned out for McCarthy, though McCarthy wouldn't make a single... Uh, dime off his writing until the 1990s. Yeah, and I want to. I was going to jump into McCarthy actually because he's like a kind of case in point of the transition from the previous age to the conglomerate age of fiction. So he he is even though he has this like very prestigious editor, um, you know, like you say, Faulkner's editor. He's and he's writing Faulknerian work. Uh, he's even things like Blood Meridian are not making good money. He basically boasts he has never seen a dime from his books. And then um, someone called Binky Urban. It's <laughs> uh, like Thomas Pynchon character has wandered off of the page. And uh, so tell us a little bit about Binky Urban and what she does for McCarthy. Yeah, so so McCarthy, as you say, you know, he's been writing since the 60s. It's the late 80s. He's never had a royalty check. Um, all of his books have gone out of print at one time or another. And and I think maybe, you know, Suchery had been brought back into the trink, print uh, in, at some point in the mid 80s. But, you know, most of his books were out of print. 
And he was really wondering about what kind of future he would have as a writer. Um, and Albert Erskine had just retired um, and was I, and, and died, I think, by 1989. I can't remember exactly the year he died, but he died around then, too. And this was the guy he'd worked with his entire career. So McCarthy was kind of, you know, a little bit at sea and, and was wondering what his career, what the future of his career was going to look like. Um, and so he figured he probably needed an agent. Mm. Uh, literary agent. I mean, since yeah. the, this is like unthinkable nowadays to to be a published writer without an agent, almost. Right, and that was a transformation that had happened between the '60s and the '80s. It was the '70s was the decade when the agent really became absolutely necessary. Um, and so, you know, McCarthy could do it without an agent when he first sent things in in the early '60s, but. Um, now he thought, okay, without my patron Erskine at Random House anymore, I need the help of an agent. So he reached out to Lynn Nesbitt, who was one of the hottest agents in the business for literary writers. It was Lynn Nesbitt or Andrew Wiley were the two two biggest. At that point, Wiley was just then getting big. Um, and Nesbitt handed off the request to a, an assistant of hers named Binky Urban. And Binky Urban was pretty junior at the time, but she would go on to become, uh, alongside Wiley, the, the most important um, literary agent for literary types, uh, you know, in American literature. Um, and it, it, amazingly, Binky Urban had read Suchery, which not a lot of people had read, and, and she loved it. Um, and so she was happy to take um, McCarthy on. Uh, and then so they started a relationship. And, and one of the first things that Urban did is reach out to this guy named Sonny Mehta, who's a massively important figure in the last 40 years of publishing, uh, who was newly come from the UK to uh, take over uh, Knopf, to be to be running Knopf. And uh, McCarthy had been publishing to that point all of his books through Random House. Um, and uh, Binky Urban thought it might be a good idea to, to switch over um, to Knopf and try working with Sonny Mehta. And between Mehta and, uh, and Mehta was enthusiastic. And for various reasons, Mehta needed, like, could it would be very useful to him to have a big win. His start at Knopf was a bit rocky. Uh, and so having a, finding ways to get big successes was something that would be really useful to him. And he was enthusiastic about trying to do it with McCarthy. And they, Urban and Mehta just put together, like, a team of, you know, Chip Kidd, who's the most famous, cover designer of the last 40 years designed the cover. They got Jane Friedman, this really important person in the history of publicity. They got Gary Fiskichon, this really important editor, all of them working together on McCarthy, who's gone, you know, it was just him and Erskine for decades. And now he's got this kind of whole team he's working with. Um, and he helps them out by writing. If you look at his first five books, they're all wonderfully weird. And there's a reason they don't sell very well. They're tough. They're strange. They don't have much of in the way of plots. Um, and then he writes All the Pretty Horses, which is just, uh, it's, it's a good novel, but it's also a much more market-friendly commercial. It's like a, I, I think of it as like Cormac McCarthy does Louis L'Amour. It's like a, it's like a true genre Western. I mean, Blood Meridian's a Western, but not, not a Louis L'Amour Western, not a genre Western. It's, it's a weird, it's its own weird fucking thing. So um, anyway, yeah. So he becomes this commercial writer. It sells a hundred thousand copies. Uh, Matt Damon, you know, makes this movie out of it, wins the national book award. It transforms McCarthy's career. He becomes wealthy and famous. Um, and so the idea is that he kind of fell in and became a creature of conglomeration and his career is divided between this kind of 
early uh, career of like writing weird shit that he could get away with. Uh, and then the second half of his career is this kind of uh, adapting, you know, you don't think of McCarthy as this sort of like adaptable commercial creature, but in mm-hmm. fact, that's exactly the shape of his career. That he sold out to use music's industry parlance. Kind of yes. like Nirvana moving into a major label, that kind of thing. Exactly. Instantly, have you read his, his latest one or latest two that came out simultaneously? I still have not found time to read The Passenger or Stella Maris, and I'd be interested because yeah, I, I would bother. I would bother to be honest. They're not great. Yeah. I've um, heard. I've, I've heard very mixed things. Yeah. So the, the, I I remember reading a, a review of it that basically asked the question of whether McCarthy is the the worst great novelist, as in the worst like Faulkner level novelist, or the best bad novelist as in the best <laughs> Stephen King level novelist and I think he I think he yeah he's flipped he's gone from being a kind of mid-range Faulkner to being a a bad Stephen King like a really really talented Stephen King uh, which brings up Stephen King who <laughs> what else I want to talk about because he's someone who emerged well into the, the conglomerate years and there's a, a very good chapter on King and his kind of anxiety. Um, it's a really good portrait of a, of a sad artist in the same way that Misery was. Mm. So, so, how, so how did King come about and why did he make that weird switch doing those David, uh, sorry, Richard, was it Richard Bruckman? Richard Bachman? Um, uh, Bachman, I think. Bachman, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, he used this pseudonym for a few years um, because, well, so let me back up uh, just a second because to understand the the travails, the sort of uh, aesthetic crisis that King has faced throughout his career, you have to understand a little bit of the kind of commercial context, the history of publishing context that he entered into in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. um, which was this uh, really tumultuous decade that determined. You know, I, I really think that contemporary literature, the the world of literature we we live in now, um, is the result of the tumultuous decades of a decade of the seventies, and that by nineteen eighty we had really entered a new kind of aesthetic regime for for the novel. Um, and King is is importantly central to this story. And what was happening in the seventies, it. it I'm I'm uh, in this book in both both my books uh, I'm I'm a, a Marxist critic uh, and so I'm looking um, at the relationship between economics and culture and here we're looking at what happened in the 70s was this transition this moment where we transition from the post-war boom to the long downturn to use Robert Brenner's phrase. Uh, And what were the implications of that for the publishing industry? Well, the publishing industry, which was now being uh, absorbed into conglomerates, uh, which themselves were getting a new demand in terms of their management philosophy uh, based on the rising hegemony of shareholder value to become the fictions, uh, to be understood purely as fictions for the creation uh, of value for shareholders. Um, at the same time that uh, consumers had less uh, available money to buy books, because books, it was a decade of stagflation, so there was uh, rising 
prices, but but unemployment and stagnating wages. Um, And so you have this dilemma for if you're a publisher, you're you're in this trap that's really bad in the 70s, because on, on from one end, from your owners, they're saying quarterly growth, quarterly growth, quarterly growth. And at the same time, consumers are having a harder time buying what you're selling. And so this is this is this is tough. And so what do you have to do if you're running a publishing company? You have to find you have to rationalize, to use Max Faber's term, you have to figure out how to make the business more predictable. Um, and so they did two, they did one of two things. One was to follow the model that Harlequin uh, which was a Canadian publisher that made uh, or did a really good job finding romance novels uh, and making series, uh, making their whole brand uh, recognizable as a brand with formulaic plots uh, in a genre, paying hack writers a little bit of money to make them, and then to to make them. Um, uh, uh, the sort of thing that readers can trust they're going to get a similar product time and time again. So this gets taken up uh, by all the, the publishers in the 70s uh, and 80s. Um, and the other thing is this, these expanded marketing and publicity departments throw all their weight behind Baroque campaigns to make a few names mega blockbuster stars. Mm. So yeah. that's what happens to Stephen King. Stephen King becomes this massive brand name um, and then he feels trapped within his brand. Hmm. Hence, yeah, Richard Bachman. He writes, I think, four or five books under that name. They sell nothing. Basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So he wanted to test. He was like, are people, basically, he was like, oh, shit, you know. I mean, he was this, you know, he, he, he he's this great story. He was aspiring writer who was, like, living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and trying to write at the same time. And when he finally sold Carrie, uh, like he sold the hardcover rights for like a few thousand bucks. And then his editor managed to sell the paperback rights for like a couple hundred thousand dollars or something life-changing. And it was just like astonishing moment for him. But very quickly he became this massive brand name. And he said, do people like my books because they recognize the brand? Are they just reading me because of my name is a household name or are are my books any good? And so that's why he did the Bachman experiment to be like, can I sell books under a different name? Is it the books or is it the name? And the books didn't sell. And so then after the Bachman experiment, he starts to write these novels like Misery or kind of throughout the multi-decade Dark Tower series it also has a sort of allegory in it like this where these where, where he has uh, kind of writing writer figures who are um who are uh kind of tormented by the same kind of fear that they are uh being um obliterated by the incorporation of their identity by the the branding of their identity and that they're not being recognized as the individual that they are and so there's these conflicts that get embedded as allegories across Stephen King's works i mean i think it's one of the great engines of creativity for him one of the great engines of his plots is this conflict between artistic integrity and corporate branding yeah, he's, he still seems to be doing it. His um, recent book by him, God, I forget its name, but um, it basically transposed him his career into a, a record producer. It was like, yeah, he's wants to stay true to himself, make great art, but he's also got to deal with the commercial things. And yeah, 40 years later, he's still dealing with this stuff. 
Um, it's still the structural condition for his art making, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a couple, like, it, it can change and you can do different variations on it. There were a couple in the in the aughts um, that he did that had, that kind of brought it into the world of globalization, um, where he started to, to kind of do a variation on it of, of worrying about artistic integrity in the context of globalized branding um, and, and technicity. Yeah. And as sad as this is to have him basically realize, oh, wait, I'm not actually a good writer. I'm just well marketed. When J.K. Rowling did the exact same thing by becoming Robert Galbraith and it flopped and she had to reveal that uh, she was, in fact, J.K. Rowling, that was incredibly funny. (laughs) Yes. Could not be more well-deserved. So genre is the kind of move to genre is a big part of this. So we see lots of like literary writers, people like um, Dennis Johnson, Joan Didion, suddenly come out with genre books. Um, and a lot of literary writers today, like Colson Whitehead, who comes up a lot, uh, either made their start in literary genre books or uh, maybe wrote some very small, then made it huge by writing a sci-fi novel, but smart. A sci-fi novel you're embarrassed about. Um, so why did why did that start happening? Why why did like say Joan Didion benefit from writing a spy novel? Why can't she just write more Joan Didion novels for people who like that? Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great question, and so it's one of these things that uh, fascinated me as a aesthetic trend of the last several decades. There are a few scholars who who recognized before me, I call it literary genre fiction, um, and started seeing and pointing out that this had become uh, this core tactic uh, for how literary writers were adapting to the market. And you can look at how like specific uh, imprints, Riverhead, for instance, is one of the great literary imprints uh, at a conglomerate house. It's within Penguin Random House. It's got a kind of interesting history. Um, but they have a predilection to publish these kinds of works of literary genre fiction. Um, and the reason that I argue that it comes up is connected to the story I was just telling about Stephen King. Um, so you have this... There, so, so since the history of, through, from the whole history of genres um, in the United States, there's been a battle between the hacks and the artists. Hmm. Um, so you know you can go back to uh, like Raymond Chandler. I mean, that's not going too far back, but back far enough for now. Raymond Chandler, you know, he got his start kind of following Dashiell Hammett uh, in the pulps, who was writing the pulps in the 1930s. Um, Black Mask was this one detective pulp that Hammett would write for as he was innovating hard-boiled noir. And uh, and Chandler thought Hammett was great and was following him. But at the same time, there was all of this, what Chandler, I mean, just a massive amount of people publishing what Chandler thought was just shitty, hacky uh, detective work. Same, you know, the same kind of battles were being fought in sci-fi, um, in in romance and western uh and what happens in the 70s and 80s when the harlequin model takes off uh is that the people with money the big corporate publishers really kind of put their hand on the scale in favor of the hacks over against the artists um and then in the 80s it's this massive decade for 
two genres in particular really blow up in the 80s, uh, romance and, and fantasy. And fantasy hadn't been a mass genre prior to 1977. Um, one, one interesting thing that I, I've literally never thought about before was how fantasy kind of appeared kind of ex nihilo as a genre, even mm-hmm. though there was Tolkien. Um, yes, yeah. It, it basically emerged to give people more Tolkien books because after Tolkien's death... It, it wasn't <laughs> the reason that all a big chunk of fantasy books are just like footnotes on Tolkien is because they were literally meant to be that. Yes. The whole genre that has, we know it today is basically one big, a massive footnote on Tolkien. Um, like there was, there's like fantastical fiction before Tolkien, some of it that he himself was drawing influence from, but it's, it's, it's very different. It's not the sort of thing that has become a mass genre in the way we understand it today, which is all, in that lineage. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's still a handful of very gr- brilliant fantasy writers who are not Tolkien, Tolkienians, Tolkien, Tolkienites. Yeah. Um, people like Brian Catling and um, uh, that's who I can think of off the top of my head. But um, yeah, they're not selling anywhere near what a um, Robin Hobb or people like that, or Brian Sanderson, for example, the 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 king sanderson's yeah selling an insane insane amount of books right now i mean if you want to look at the continued dominance so it was the 80s were the decade because of all this like kind of institutional uh publishing history change that i've been talking about is the 80s that fantasy and romance became big and romance and fantasy when i say is the 80s that contemporary literature emerged in 2023 romance and fantasy remain just massively huge and even you know have been kind of spawning these variations the the term that the neologism that people have been using in the last year is uh romanticy is a kind of bridging of the Ooh, two god i hate that term. it's terrible it's a terrible term it's like a book talk it's like a book talk kind of uh very you know. much so well we're gonna we're gonna get on to book talk don't yeah. don't you worry we're gonna we're, it's coming um yeah yeah, yeah uh, it's just one last sorry whenever <laughs> i i've got coming to get these long meandering ways of trying to answer questions because i feel like to explain something like literary genre fiction i kind of have to explain the context of that yeah so to get circle back around to that just briefly like in the 80s then when you've got this you know increasing demand for quarterly growth from conglomerate uh parent companies and you've got the rise of romance and fantasy in these genres as uh, finding commercial success and there was there was kind of struggles among what only then was becoming termed literary fiction it needed to be defined as literary fiction in the 1980s um in part because of the new commercial context in which people were writing um you had literary writers who wanted to succeed um figuring out new techniques that would allow them to be commercial enough uh, to be successful on the in a conglomerate house that was looking for quarterly growth. And so that's where like that story of Cormac McCarthy turning to the Western genre with all the pretty horses and finding great success is the perfect model for this rise of literary genre fiction, where, where Joan Didion, who had been toying around with the, the thriller genre for a few novels, finally writes like a full-blown thriller in 1996. Um, and then you get in, I think it's 99, that Colson Whitehead, you know, kind of at the end of this decade of the 90s, where the literary genre fiction, where like kind of established writers are playing with it. Um, this is like, you get someone like Jonathan Lethem comes in towards the late 90s with Motherless Brooklyn. You get the intuitionist, uh, 
both those kind of plays on detective or noir. Um, and it becomes this just recognizable strategy among editors, agents, and writers as a way to write a literary book that can succeed at a commercial imprint. And then you get a decade of, did you know science fiction can be for smart people now? It's incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is what China Mielville uh, is kind of yeah. this important, really important figure for launching that. Mm, yeah. Um, let's just take a little musical break, though, um, before we get into kind of where we are now and what, where we could be. And, and to book talk, obviously, because we've got to talk about book talk. Um, I'm going to play a new song from uh, a band called Fawn Limbs. They're collaborating with, uh, conglomerating with a band called Nadja, who have been around a long time. Um, both kind of heavy, sludgy noise bands. They've done a collaborative album called uh, Vestigial Spectra. Uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the, it, if this was a book, it would be literary genre fiction. It's a low red, um, it's a low culture genre like heavy metal, but done intelligently. So you can, uh, so you're not embarrassed about how silly it is anymore, uh, which is, you know, heavy metal has been doing that since probably the sixties, but, um, I'm going to play a the third song of the album. It's called Cast- Cascading Entropy. Uh, it's, it's loud. It's noisy. It's got this like mathematical, uh, complexity to it, which is very satisfying. So here is uh, Fawn Limbs and Nadja playing Cascading Entropy.
That was Fawn Limbs and Nadja playing Cascaded Entropy off the album Vestigial Spectra. Uh, it's out right now from, I believe, uh, I don't even know who's released it. Um, Wolves and Vibrancy. Not heard of that before. Maybe it's self-released. I'm not sure, quite sure. Um, but I'm here with uh, Dan Sinekin, author of uh, Big Fiction. And so we've talked about the conglomeration era. Um, one of the kind of interesting things, I mean, a, a big chunk of the book is it takes place on the, yeah, what is rightly called the kind of Marxist um, interpretation of literature, where we're talking about how the material conditions of the world are affecting how and why, like what actually is written in books. And one of the really interesting things, which I think some people had from the review sounded like a tiny little mini problem with, was things like uh, Toni Morrison's book Beloved being read as a um, allegory of the publishing industry, even though she literally says that is exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've read Beloved. I you know, did a degree in American literature. I should probably read Beloved. Uh, it's brilliant. I, I, I don't. I think the edition I got must have not had that introduction that had the whole thing about it being in publishing. I, I really never even knew much about Morrison's life before she wrote that. Um, so yeah, how 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 is that working with people? Uh, Going to be really blunt with this. People, mm-hmm. uh, marginalized people, people of color, uh, women who are not the margin at all. They're half the world, but they. How is that affecting people who are not, you know, straight white men? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's so much to say here. And first, I, oh, yeah. first, I want, yeah. Uh, yeah, first, first, I want to say something about the the Morrison thing because it's been, it's been so interesting to me to see how this kind of has repeatedly, as as you noted, been kind of picked up. It's this. It's like four pages, kind of smack in the middle of this 320 page book. Um, but it's, it's people keep coming to it to um, kind of flag their resistance to my interpretation. Um, and it's, I, I, the, the, it's, it's a case where I think the evidence is pretty strong for the argument that I make and the interpretation I do of Beloved. As you say, Morrison herself invites this interpretation in a preface she writes to a later edition of the novel um she had just finished working in the publishing industry for 16 years uh and had quit her job in 1983 um and went and then began to focus her energies on beloved which was published in 1987 um she herself says that the freedom she felt from quitting publishing uh was you know the occasion from which she could say enter beloved into her life uh a novel about uh, thinking through the problems of freedom in a very different context. And I think there's something a little bit, um, uh, saying this novel about slavery is a novel about publishing. I think, mm. uh, okay, I'm glad you've said it. It is kind of problematic to say me leaving my job in a well-respected publishing industry in New York. What it's, it's like, like slavery. <laughs> it, it, it is. Uh, and yet at the same time, like that's, you know, and I, and, and in the book, I'm like, Hey, you know, 
let's just follow Morrison's. I'm like, I'm following Morrison's own, you know, suggestion that she's laying out pretty clearly um, here. And it's also, and it's not, it's not just that, that it's comparing slavery to working in a publishing house, which I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that those things are being compared. It's that Morrison is saying, I had a feeling of like this experience of working a job and like, working for a wage and then I didn't work that anymore and I felt this sort of sense of liberation that allowed me gave me the inspiration to have this imaginative possibility of thinking back about slavery in a different way than I had thought about it before and I began to work on this novel um but also what I think the resistance is to uh, is thinking that a writer like Morrison is writing out of the material conditions uh, of of um, of her life that people are so attached to the romanticism of artistry, the idea that artistry is a realm of freedom, um, that uh, and and this kind of there's a kind of American cult uh, of creativity that uh, that that Toni Morrison is this ultimate figure for um in our collective cultural imagination and so to suggest that like she as everyone else um is working through her experience of working in a publishing house while writing this great novel um that this great novel is also about mundane things that are happening in her daily life and her work life um and not this kind of you know towering uh example of the power of imagination in the human mind uh i think that's also part of what is offending people and that part i uh you know i am happy to burst that balloon uh of this of of this kind of uh cultural fascination with genius and uh the individual the, the whole idea is that of the book of the whole idea of big fiction is that all of our cultural products are products that are much more like the cognition in them, the work in them is distributed among so many people and the fast, the, the kind of obsession with the individual, with the author in this case, um, is itself a product of cultural history that is necessary for capitalism. Um, hmm. and isn't necessarily for his friends. It, the author's brand is really important. It's much easier to sell a book based on a picture of, you know, Toni Morrison uh, or based on her name emblazoned on the cover than it is, uh, you know, Random House or Knopf. She was a Knopf writer. Um, no one cares if it's from Knopf. They care it's Toni Morrison. So uh, that's what you need to sell it. Um, and of course, Toni Morrison was like a brilliant, you know, one of the most brilliant novelists we've ever had. I'm not denying that. But at the same time, I'm suggesting that she, as every other writer, uh, is much more enmeshed in a collective that is helping produce uh, the cognition in her work than any of us would typically like to believe. Hmm. And so just changing track a little bit. So... Um, there's a quite significant part of the book on autofiction, which uh, kind of had a very big kind of surge a few years ago to the point that I think quite a few readers are not going to realise, you know, it's it's not a new genre by any means, probably hundreds of years old at this point. So why is autofiction a good fit for this, or, or even a bad fit, uh, a, for the like, conglomerate era? Why does it work right now? 
Yeah. So autofiction, uh, alongside literary genre fiction, if you're looking at the kind of prestigious side of uh, of fiction, the stuff that wins prizes, uh, gets a lot of reviews, is critically praised, um, literary genre fiction and autofiction are two um, uh, especially successful uh, modes of accomplishing that. So why then is autofiction doing so well? Uh, and if you think about it in the context of conglomerate publishing, um, you can see that autofiction does something, um, performs a service, does something for the author, and it also does something for the publishing house. So for the author, they're increasingly, authorship is increasingly uh, tied up in um, self-marketing in self-branding, mm -hmm. uh, in um, being a publicly uh, a public figure uh, on the internet. Um, and one of the things you're able to do, um, and the, the other piece of it under conglomeration, mm -hmm. an increasing number of people have a hand in determining or shaping what works and what you can write, what you can get away with, um, and what can be published uh, at a conglomerate publishing house. Um, they've become kind of increasingly embedded in a bureaucratic context. And so all of these things, uh, both the increasing kind of public nature of authorship and the increasing bureaucracy of publishing itself as a business, um, both threaten the artistic agency or autonomy of the author. And so to write a work of autofiction where the author places him or herself at the center of the narrative um, and makes themselves a protagonist, the protagonist uh, is, is a way of grasping for control or agency. You're the one writing your own story, even if you're the one describing um, how that story of artistry or authorship is embedded in these very same contexts. Um, so from the authorial side, autofiction is a way to, uh, ex to, to express control as you're losing actual control of being an author. From the conglomerate side, um, the conglomerate is increasingly trying to become rationalized and predictable, bureaucratic, but that is also something that it wants to hide. It doesn't want to be publicly known that the books that it is putting out are increasingly rationalized, bureaucratized, um, because that is because we want the uh, aura of genius. The consumer, the people who are going to put this up off the bookshelf, don't want uh, another nondescript commodity that has been sent out of the bureaucratic machine. Um, they want uh, this kind of sparkling, um, fetishized object. Uh, and so autofiction is, for the same reasons, um, a way to uh, say, hey, look, you know, this, the person who wrote this book um, is also, uh, you know, it's this kind of advertisement for the figure of the author. They're not only the name on the front of the cover, but they're the character walking through the book. Um, we get to see them writing. We get to see them thinking. Um, and so it is this return to, this is this abetting uh, uh, of the romanticization of the author, the conglomeration also needs. Um, so it succeeds for all parties um, and it also happens to satisfy a cultural demand for gossip 
um, seeing behind the scenes, seeing how the sausage is made. Uh, and that's, that's makes it work for critics as well. And so it's a genre that works for everybody. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be that too much of it nowadays. It's kind of, kind of had its peak a few years back and, uh, you don't hear as much autofiction. Maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was I was going to say that I've, the few folks that I've been talking to in the business uh, suggested that we we can expect to see a fair few still coming along down 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 the line in the next few years. Um, but yeah, I would say the last one to get a bunch of big attention was maybe uh, Learner's latest. Um, the Topeka School. Mm, yeah, that's a couple years out now. It is, and I hated that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's uh, it's a it, it, and the ending is atrocious. I mean, uh, particularly yeah. atrocious. I'll have to take your word on that. I didn't get very far. Um, <laughs> felt like felt like a young adult, but um, yeah, nothing wrong with some young adult book, but it's not for me. But yeah, if I'm if I'm being told, yeah, this is a a genius literary writer. I don't expect it to sound like a young adult book. Anyway, that's uh, enough about him. Um, so there was one one character that, um, if I was writing the book, which thank God I'm not, um, I would I would have put in as kind of like a emblematic creature of the conglomerate era, and that's James Frey, the million little pieces guy. Yeah, yeah. Because he hits on a bunch of different things that we've been talking about here. Like, started off with uh, a memoir that was kind of autofiction, um, ended up on Oprah crying about it, then makes this weird turn to, like, mass-written young adult books where he employs a bunch of MFA students who just come off their courses to write these young adult sci-fi novels I think there was like 10 of them and there was a film made of uh, I am number four, uh, which did badly. Then he goes back to writing young, young adult sci-fi books and is now the CEO of an esports company. <laughs> um, yeah, just all over the place. I, am I right in thinking he is like a, a very prototypical figure of this of where we are right now uh, for the last 20 years or so um i mean i have not followed his career closely but based on what you've just described he sounds like he's been basically riding the wave of whatever cultural trend is happening at the moment and so insofar as conglomeration has you know it's it's, a, it's complex and it's capacious and there's room for lots of different kinds of things but it has a tendency to drive towards um towards uh you know customer satisfaction in the name of the bottom line of shareholder value and insofar as the sort of crudest most vulgar version of that is to trend is to kind of chase trends um and that is definitely something that it has led to among uh you know many cultural figures uh, it seems like J james frey would be a uh emblematic <laughs> uh trend chaser uh which is you know the the maybe the saddest uh consequence of conglomeration yeah and yet he's still getting seven figure advances I, i've i had to like check if he was still writing books apparently he is and getting a hell of a lot of money for doing so um sad um it is sad yeah 
let, let's 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 make ourselves happy again. Um, so who who is doing it right? Like who who has bypassed this massive trend that's been going on since the seventies and is still putting out great stuff? A lot of people. I think we're in a really strong moment for fiction, actually. Um, and there's 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 a lot of different ways people have found to do this. Um, for one, as I just said, I think conglomerate presses are capacious. I think there's room still, but they have not been there. There's it's there's, they haven't been anywhere close to being like completely 100% rationalized and bureaucratized to the point where you can't do anything weird. There are people who find ways. People are creative. They're smart, um, and they find ways to do interesting things within conglomerate presses. So, like I was a big fan of Lauren Groff's Matrix, um, which I think is a terrific, weird little novel that got published by Riverhead. So. First of all, I'm not I'm not like oh conglomerate fiction universally bad. Um, yeah, uh, we have on the show like people from all kinds of fiction, and a lot of them are published in these you know, you know, random house, the big five, uh, random house, Penguin, and all that. It's yeah, yeah. They publish. There's still ways to publish. You know, great, great works of fiction through the conglomerate presses. There's still ways to find, uh, you know, to find weird to, to do weird stuff in pockets and niches there. Um, so, so there's that, but then there's been this, there's this, there's this really lively sector that's completely outside of conglomeration, um, that, uh, has a couple different modes by which it operates. Um, so one is through becoming a nonprofit where you can subsidize yourself with government funding or foundation funding or private philanthropy. Um, and this is a model that emerged explicitly in resistance to conglomeration in the 1980s. They were like, there was a worry among creative types that conglomeration would destroy literature. And so they thought we need to create an alternative. Um, and so they, um, you know, built this whole infrastructure in the 80s that now many presses are taking advantage of. And so here I would look to presses. The, the originals are like Grey Wolf Press, Coffee House Press, um, Milkweed Editions, Dalkey Archive. Uh, Dalkey Archive has since its founder, John O'Brien, um, died and was acquired by Will Evans, uh, who runs a press called Deep Vellum in Dallas, Texas, um, that is that now also is republishing um, the old Dalkey lists. Uh, you know, all those presses are doing good stuff. Hub City Press is a nonprofit in South Carolina. Um, there's, I think, Transit, uh, which did all the Yonfasa, most of the Yonfasa books um, out in California is a nonprofit. Um, and so there's a lot of nonprofit presses that are succeeding through that financial model and finding mm -hmm. ways to do good stuff. Yeah, I like the. There was a section um, on, like, I think it was early Grey Wolf and Coffee House Press on how they moved out of New York and found this weird little town in the middle of nowhere and were squatting in places and doing readings in in a, the one bookstore and it just seemed all very utopian. It was, it was a really yeah, nice yeah, that's part of New York. 
Port Townsend in the late seventies, you had this, you know, you could, you could live, you could, you know, you could square there were places you could squat in Port Townsend in the late seventies or like 6,000 people lived there, but it was super sleepy. You could, if you needed eventually you get rent, you could pay for a room for like 50 bucks a month or something. Um, and you know, uh, Frank Herbert was there writing Dune. Um, there was, uh, this like writers, um, retreat that would have annually have all these like great people coming through and it had like six or seven little presses in this little town. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was where, um, the, the poetry press Copper Canyon still is there and Grey Wolf started there. Um, so it's, and they, they, they were self-consciously thinking of themselves. They said, ignore New York was their, uh, kind of motto. Um, and that, and they were really, you know, they, they created, again, this is another instance where the late seventies or the eighties was kind of the creation of the world literary world we live in today. It's out of that, that this nonprofit model emerged. That is one of the major alternatives to conglomerate publishing. Now, um, there are a few other ways for people who are there, there are presses that are doing great work that are not nonprofits and they find, they fund themselves in different ways. So NYRB. Um, New York Review Books uh, started in 1999 with this guy, Edwin Frank, uh, and they publish, uh, you know, they, they started as kind of a pure <coughs> reprint house, just finding all these books that had gone out of print um, and clearing the rights for them and republishing them. A lot of work in translation. Um, they started once they had success and they they had a lot of things, you know, they're 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 not not nonprofit, um, but they're tied with the New York Review of Books, and so they immediately had the brand recognition of the New York Review of Books. They got a re- they did a really smart job with their book designs so that all their books look really sleek and nice, and then people want to yeah. collect them and recognize them, and bookstores want to put them on the shelves. So like they did a lot of smart things in terms of like design, and they also have a really good editorial taste, and so the books that they publish are great and they only sell like they with these small presses like New York Review Books typically will publish 4 or 5000 for a run which is like nothing for a conglomerate press but for them you know if they can sell 4 or 5000 and they they they've got committed followers so you know there's enough people that will buy like enough of their books they can they can publish 4 or 5000 sell if they can sell out 4 or 5000 you know they're making enough money to to keep going um so you know there's 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 a great tiny little press in St. Louis called Dorothy that's run by Marty Riker and Daniel Dutton they're they're funding it based on being tenure track professors at Washington University there's a software engineer out in Seattle uh named Josh Rothis who's started a press called Sublunary Editions that does a bunch of wonderful weird stuff so anyway like we we I think we live in a great moment with lots of people who are doing it right yeah and just as a the last the last thing if someone is a a writer right now um obviously they're they're not going to get those big six-figure advances that you used to get even like the quite low advances that people were getting in your book like uh, Chuck Polonik and people there even that is kind of gone out the window but what what can writers do in this situation to a make enough money to live on and b write stuff they want to write instead of what the market tells them to write 
Yeah, so there was just a, a good piece in Esquire a few weeks ago um, about how it's always been hard, how it's hard now and always has been hard to make a living as a writer and only a writer. I mean, it is, um, I mean, the, the so, so the bad news on that front is that it's almost always been nearly impossible um, and continues to be almost nearly impossible to make it just just writing. Um, the way people tend to do it is they ha have another job. Most writers, even successful writers, like have another job or they, they marry rich or they inherited money from their parents or they, um, or if they're lucky enough, they went to an MFA and published a book. Most people who get MFAs don't end up being able to be creative writing professors, but that's one path that mm -hmm. some yeah. writers mm -hmm. succeed. Take. Several people off my MFA did the exact same thing. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, there's a lot more people who get creative writing MFAs than actually get to be professors, but that's oh, like. God, don't uh, I know it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a path. But so, anyway, <clears throat> that might be like the sort of negative side of it. But, but I want to, I want to give the, 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 there is a beautiful, I think, also side uh, to it for what writers can do and should do, in my opinion, which is that. You know, as I was just saying, we live in uh, a moment where there are a lot of people out there who are doing great work as editors and publishers um, who are running small outfits, whether it be small magazines um, or small publishing houses. Uh, and I think what's important, it, it can be... I, 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 you know, I wanted to be a fiction writer for a long time. And, and until I started working on this book six, seven, eight years ago, you know, I think I thought the main way that you did that was like, you go, you get an MFA, um, you, you do, you distinguish yourself in your MFA, you get an agent, and then you sell your book uh, at an auction to a conglomerate house. Um, and that's basically what you do. And that's what it means to be a success. And this has completely altered my understanding of what it means to succeed as a writer. Um, I mean, I think that's a bizarre lottery game. And I think the stuff that works, if you go to an MFA, get an agent, sell a book at auction and succeed with a conglomerate house is constrained by so many of the demands that I walk through in big fiction about, you know, of shareholder value and, and the kind of demands of trends and, and fads and comparative titles that I don't even know that that is success for a lot of people who dream about being a writer. Whereas there's this alternative path you can take by finding the people who are your aesthetic uh, comrades, find out where they're writing, find out where they're publishing, um, find out who, else, who is on, find out the editors at the magazines and the publishing houses who share your aesthetic taste, read the books on their lists, uh, read the essays and the writers that they're publishing in their journals, and then you know reach out to them, make them your community, try to enter into, um, and and that might be uh, a world of you know uh, a few hundred people or a few thousand people. Um, but if you are a writer and you can find those few hundred, few thousand people that are your aesthetic comrades and join that community, um, I think that is. The dream of success and i think there's a, a lot enough people out there who are building these worlds uh that it's um a really exciting and hopeful time um to go out and and find them and and uh you know live this kind of beautiful aesthetic life 
God, I don't want to ask any more questions there because I was such a good ending. I should have had like, uh, I'll edit it into like fanfare or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, mean, I can keep answering. You can cut it and switch, switch it up later in post. Oh, no, I, I, I'm uh, the Jack Kerouac of editing. It's it's right the first time. Um, I'm doing fat ton of speed and just gonna let it go out there to the world. Um, but uh, where can people find you and, be, and become part of your beautiful aesthetic community and uh, then buy your book? Yeah, so I, I hang out a lot um, on. Uh, I'm still uh, on on uh, on X, uh, which you know. Just call it Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I'm still it'll on be, Twitter. It'll be Twitter yeah. again one day. So it's. It, I hope so. For people in the future listening to this who are like, "What's X?" Uh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. Twitter used to be called that for a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. I I'm conflicted about it, but it's, it's there's there are still like so many wonderful essayists and critics and mm, writers. I know. Yeah, I I really want to be done with slash twitter but yeah i i couldn't do the show if i if i wasn't on there I, I just wouldn't know of new stuff coming out yeah it's it's such a great place to find i found so many of the people who like I, I a lot of the reading i do is through the community i've built there um mm. and i'm there uh dan underscore Sinekin, and i'm also on blue sky which i you know i'm trying to make my way over yeah, more and the- more the new frontier we're trying to eke out our existence on um really trying to make blue sky into something good yeah but but i I think you know as you just said like i think podcasts like this uh and you know podcasts are another format like books podcasts are are great places to find your aesthetic community um and the writers of these journals and all these things social media is is a place that i think have allowed a lot of journals and publishers and podcasts to find their people and thrive um so there's there's the good and the bad in that um so those yeah those are the places i hang out and if you want to uh find my book um i would you know i think the best thing to do and the thing that i really try to do when as much as i I can is to call my local bookstore and if they don't have it on the shelf um ask them to order it um so that you can keep your um local brick and mortar uh in business Mm. and don't get it from amazon because it's a hundred pounds if you want to buy it in the uk at the moment Jesus Christ! I need to talk to my publisher. I need to talk to Columbia and be like, "Hey, I think there's readers in the UK who wouldn't mind reading this book. Do you think we can like ship some over there and make it so it's a reasonable price?" Oh yeah. And lastly, it has a lovely cover, really nice cover. Uh, but um, so Dan, yep, thanks again for being on the show and for writing this brilliant, brilliant book. Which I think, even if you're not like me, a uh, descending uh, publishing uh, professional, even if you don't think it that you really need to know how the sausage gets made. It's also just a really fun book with a load of weird characters in having weird parties and Edward Gorey is there for some reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks again. But um, we're going to end today with uh, kind of a, a an obvious choice for this, this, um, this podcast because you know it's it's a metal it's an anarchist metal band um panopticon out of Ely, minnesota who has been around for a long long time now is like one of the big names in american black metal um who 
many people know from the album Kentucky, which was a, you know, at a time when people think about black metal, they think of burning churches in Norway. This was an album about the workers' struggle in Virginia in the coal mines. Um, he's still working in that same like windswept, beautiful, snowy aesthetic. Um, ten albums later, I mean, how many bands have had a streak of ten good albums? Like the tenth Black Sabbath album is Mob Rules, the last one that Dio was on. The tenth Beatles album is the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, which is garbage. Um, and this tenth album, uh, The Rhyme of Memory, is every bit as good as his first album. Just absolute classic guy. Plus, he he works as a beer brewer. He, he looks much like a an author. He works. He has a real job to support his artistic thing, and that is to make beer. So he's automatically a cool guy in my book. Um, we're going to be playing a part, an edit of the third song of that album because it's sixteen minutes long. If we play the whole thing, I don't want to do that. So we'll cut it down to like five or six. Um, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it has like a really like hopeful note, like major key stuff going on in there, which doesn't sound like bleak and depressive like so much that does in a genre. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant um, artist. And we'll be back pretty soon. We've got um, uh, those weird freaks from the Acid Horizon podcast are going to be talking about the book uh, Anti-Oculus. Um, and we're going to be talk, uh, yeah, keeping uh, making our aesthetic community even bigger by talking to more people. But uh, here's Panopticon.
unrecognizable. And the meaning of the substance that he was also under 